Amen. Please remain standing if you're able. Turn in your scriptures to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And we're reading just one section of that psalm, verses 97 to 104. If you're visiting, we're working our way through um, the godly man, the godly woman, the godly person's picture, what it is to be a godly person. And the godly person we hear this week loves the word of God. And so here we have Psalm 119, beginning at verse 97, reading through to verse 104. This is the word of God. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Lord, may it be now that we love your law, we love your word. And as the psalmist says, Lord, you have taught us. Teach us now, we pray. Equip us, not only with the word, but the almighty working of the Holy Spirit. Lord, give me words to speak. May I decrease, may you increase, and may all your people be blessed in the presence of you, our God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if we believe that the scriptures are the very word of God, there really are two natural consequences to that item of faith. Uh, First, uh, to love the word ought to lead us to love God. To love the word ought to lead us to love God. And if we do love the word and we do love God, then secondly, we find ourselves as Christians living in the sphere of the most profound blessing known to man in this age. The Christian is someone who loves God and loves the word of God. And we live in that sphere of divine blessing, protection, and care. You see, to have a relationship with God without having a relationship with his word makes a mockery of our relationship with God. To have a relationship with God without having relationship with his word makes a mockery of our claim to be a Christian. But the psalmist here in this section provides us with a true picture, not just of true blessedness, but a true picture of what it is to have a relationship with God in and through the word of God. Yes, the godly person loves the word of God. And that's really our first consideration we see there in verse 97. The godly person loves both God and his word. The godly person loves God and his word. 
And then the rest of this short section, then 98 to 104, really fills in that statement. It tells us why the godly person loves both God and his word. So there's really a very simple structure. The first verse is that statement about the godly person loves both God and his word. And then 98 to 104 will tell us why the godly person loves both God and his word. So let's think on this matter for one moment. In verse 97, the godly person loves God and his word. First thing we need to note as we work through our way through Psalm 119, these verses. In the Hebrew, all the verses between 97 and 104 begin with the letter M. The first word begins with the letter M. The previous section begins with the letter L. The next section, as you can see in your Bible, begins with the letter N. They've got headings over them. And we think the Hebrew writer wrote this psalm in this way in order to provide an easier means of memorization of this psalm. Memorization of this psalm. All 176 verses of it. Oh, how I love your law, says the psalmist. We're also going to find a structure within the verses themselves. Verse verse 97 has a statement, a statement of desire in the first part of the verse with an accompanying action attached to it. 98 to 104 are slightly different. It starts with a product. Look at verse 98. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. There's the product. And attached to that product follows the reason why the product is there. For... It is ever with me. So Psalm 97, sorry, verse 97 really is the, the theme statement of this section, the love of the law of God. And then 98 to 104 will tell us what it produces in our lives and the reason why it produces such uh, products. There is then, we see in this psalm, a delight in God's word. There's the product of God's word. There's the study and the meditation upon God's word. But because the psalmist has a relationship with the word of God, it's a faith-filled relationship, we actually have to say he also has a relationship with God himself. It's not just a relationship with words in a book, it's a relationship with a person. That person is God himself. And the relationship with God underpins the whole psalm. The psalmist's relationship with God, it's not just an intellectual matter. There's a true, genuine, loving relationship and communion between the psalmist. It's not just what God does in his life, those good things. It's God himself. It's love and communion with God manifested through the word. Psalm 119 is all about the law of God, the precepts, the testimonies, the word of God. The psalmist is telling us he loves the Lord and he loves the Lord. One way he does is through the word. But how can we say that the relationship with God underpins this whole psalm when the name of God only appears once in the entire psalm. Psalm verse 115, there's the mention of the name God. 
How can we say there's a relationship underpinning, undergirding all this? Well, it's not just the name of God, of course. It's the proper name of the Lord that we look for also. The name Yahweh, translated Lord, in 22 stanzas of Psalm 119, appears 23 times. Ironically, it doesn't appear in our stanza tonight, but... 23 times throughout the rest of the psalm, the idea of the Lord, of Yahweh, is ever-present. Yahweh is, of course, the name by which the Lord revealed himself. He did so to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Moses has been commissioned to go back down to Egypt, and he says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, Yahweh, the Lord. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you, Yahweh. The name by which God wished to be known by his people. This Yahweh is the God of deliverance, the God of the Passover, the God of redemption, the God of the miracle of the Red Sea, of the pillar of cloud and fire, of the manna, of the water from the rock. He's the God of the law of Sinai. And before that, he was the God of covenant promises to his people. Here he is. The self-existent, absolute, almighty I am. And you see, it's not just what this I am gives to us in terms of us thinking of a package of blessings. Well, God does nice things for Christians. I mean, that's very true. But when we think about a relationship with God, we have to conclude as we read scripture, God in relationship with us does not just give us nice things, he gives us himself. Himself. Listen to what John Owen, the old Puritan, says on this communion, this relationship with God. He says, our communion with God consisteth in his communication of himself unto us. Himself, his person, it's not just a nice package of benefits. It's the person, Father, Son, and Spirit, who communicates himself to us. Owen continues, uh, it's not just his his communication of himself unto us, with our return unto him of that which he requireth and accepteth, flowing from that union which in Jesus Christ we have with him. The foundation of the psalmist relationship and your relationship, dear Christian, uh, according to Owen here, is union with Christ. We spoke about that this morning in the baptism. Union with Christ. In Christ, God communicates himself to the Christian. And this language of communion we see as follows in Scripture. We see it spoken of in terms of fellowship, of enjoyment, of sharing. Scripture portrays for us the marriage feast of the Lamb, of eating and drinking in the presence of God Almighty, of seeing the Savior with the eyes of flesh, of being in his presence. 
Putting it very simply, friends, in the context of this psalm, one of the chief ways that the psalmist and thus the Christian communes with God is through the word. It's through the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 47 makes this abundantly clear. Verse 47, no, verse 41. I think I've got that wrong. Well, we'll have to miss that one out. But verse 97 speaks of the same matter. Oh, how I love your law. How I love your law. It's not some law abstracted. It's a personal law. The communication of the moral character of God. We see a bond of love that exists between God and the psalmist, reflected in a desire for his word. That's not a novel idea to the Christian. It's not a novel idea in the Psalms. Psalm 19 verse 7 tells us the same thing. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. And the psalmist finishes that psalm with these words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There's relationship there. There's communion. The psalmist is yearning to be acceptable in the sight of his heavenly father. That's what's underpinning this whole psalm, Psalm 119. Friends, we have a good God. We have a kind and loving Father. We have one who meets our greatest sin needs, not just removing our sin, not just granting us righteousness, dear friends, but what? He welcomes us into his family. He adopts us into his family making us brother and sister, even joint heirs with Christ. That's a staggering privilege. So that we think and we read of sitting at table with our Lord. We're indwelt by the Spirit. This relationship ought to be of genuine delight to your soul, dear friends. This communion. And Scripture speaks to us of God's genuine delight of us. Not just should we delight in him, he actually delights in us. This is the, 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 the nature of this communion. It's a two-way relationship. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Psalm 18, we read this. Psalm 18, verse 19. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Psalm 149, verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. 
can we see what's being said here? Underpinning this, this love of the word of God is a two-way loving relationship from God to us and us to God. Scripture culminates with this idea of the self-communication of God to his people. Revelation 21 and verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And the Greek's very emphatic when it says this, He himself will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Unmediated presence of God. He enjoying us and we enjoying him. The psalmist is telling us through verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The psalmist is telling us that statement about love for the word of God is in a context. That for him, one of the chief means of communing with almighty God, enjoying God and being enjoyed by God is through the word of God. That's perhaps one of the chief means we enjoy our God through the word. God communicates not just the benefits of redemption. He communicates himself to you, dear Christian. Think on that. And so when Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? Really puts it in its context, doesn't it? God has communicated himself to you, the almighty. The almighty, eternal God has given himself unto you, dear Christian. What more can you ask for? So friends, we ask ourselves this question. Do we love the law of God? Do we meditate on it all the day? Notwithstanding our ordinary duties, of course. Do we meditate on it? Do we memorize it? Perhaps we can say this. Do we commit the word to heart? Is our relationship to the word of God a reflection of our relationship with God? Well, we have to say it most certainly is. Do we love the Lord through one of his chief means, the word? Now, Why does the godly person love the Lord and love his word? There are before us seven reasons, one in each verse. We can't spend too much time on any one of them, of course, but God does wonderful things for and in the one who gives himself to the word. And I want this to wash over you tonight and and, and perhaps sink into your hearts. The profound and eternal blessing of being a man, a woman, a child of the word of God. The first reason in verse 98 why the psalmist loves the word of God is because it makes him wiser than his enemies. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. What does it mean that the commandments of the Lord make the psalmist, the Christian, wiser than their enemies? You'll notice that wisdom or understanding is a profound product 
of meditating on the word. Not only is it there in verse 98, it's also there in verse 99, it's there in verse 100, and it's there in verse 104. Four of the seven reasons for loving the word is this, it makes you wise, it gives you understanding. Here the psalmist says he's received wisdom from the spirit working the word in his heart through the word to the end that he is wise more than his enemies. What does it mean, more than his enemies? Who were the psalmist's enemies? Well, we don't know who wrote this, I think. Could be David, could be anyone in the covenant community. But the history that we read of Israel is that the enemies of the covenant people, of the psalmist, frequently were twofold. There was the pagan, the Philistine, the Canaanite, invaders from outside of the covenant community, or there were those from within the covenant community who turned out to be enemies. Think of David. Saul, the king, was his enemy. Absalom, his son, was his enemy. And is it not the case, as in every verse of this psalm, we'll see these truths reflected in the life and experience of our Lord Jesus Christ? Enemies from without the covenant people, and most certainly enemies within. But the commandment of the Lord makes the Christian wiser than his enemies. This wisdom it speaks of is not a worldly wisdom. It's a divine wisdom. An illumination by the Holy Spirit. Divine wisdom instructs the Christian to trust the Lord come what may. Divine wisdom instructs the Christian to trust the Lord and not man. Calvin, commenting on this passage, says, The malice of the wicked is always goading them to do mischief. And as they are often artful and deceitful, we are afraid, lest our simplicity should be imposed upon by their deceits, unless we use the same crafts and underhand dealings that they practice. Accordingly, the prophet glories that he found in God's law enough to be able to escape their snares. Divine wisdom equips the Christian to trust God's ends and to trust God's means. To trust God's ends, where it will eventually take us the will of God, and to trust the Lord's way of getting us to that destination. We trust in God to deliver us, do we not? It might be deliverance from trouble in this age, and even at the point of our death, we know that is a deliverance to the age to come where we are released from this present evil age. So when we think about destination, we trust the Lord to deliver us. But we must also trust the Lord in means. We must trust the Lord in the way he will get us there. That we don't resort to ungodliness to achieve godly goals. We trust the Lord for the end, the deliverance from the enemies, and we trust the Lord for the process or the means. When does this protection of godly wisdom happen? It's all the time. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. 
The commandment of the Lord is always with him. Stands to reason the protection of wisdom and of God is also always with him. We're told not to put our trust in princes or in a son of man in whom there is no salvation, but our trust is in God. Does the word of, of the Lord equip you, dear friend, to trust in the Lord in the midst of trials and in the midst of enemies? Does it function like that in your life? The psalmist says it does in his life. The second reason the godly person loves the word of God, uh, verse 99, is that it also makes him wiser than his teachers. Not just wiser than his enemies, but more understanding than his teachers. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. We have a picture here of someone, probably from the days of their youth, devoted to the word of God. For your testimonies are my meditation. Uh, That's not to say he hasn't meditated upon anything else, but this is clearly the most important meditation in the psalmist's life. For your testimonies are my meditation. I have thought on them. I have learned them. I have scrutinized them in light of life and my experience. And this meditation upon the testimonies the law of god has a product in his life he becomes wiser than his teachers wiser than those who taught him as a young person a young man or a young woman it's a picture of the covenant member who is outstripped in maturity knowledge understanding and wisdom those who were their tutors So devoted have they been to the word of God, they have grown wiser and have greater understanding than even their teachers. I think again we see this in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? As we see Christ as a young boy in the temple, his parents set out from Jerusalem thinking he's in the midst of the group traveling back. And they don't find him after, they don't find him and they return to Jerusalem and they find him sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And we read this, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He became wiser than his teachers. How? By meditating upon the testimonies of the Lord his God. What we see in Christ, we see in part in the psalmist and in part in us. We don't fulfill this text by any stretch of the imagination. Our Lord does, but it still applies to us. Let me speak to the children for a minute. Children, listen. Do you love the testimonies of the Lord? Do you think on God's word? 
If you do, God says, and you do it by faith, he will make you wise and filled with understanding. So much so that one day you could grow up and be wiser than your parents or wiser than your pastors. Pray God that it is so. Children, give yourself to the word of God from your earliest days. You will never, ever regret it. But the third reason why the psalmist loves the law and the word of God is there in verse 100. It's similar to the previous verses. It has to do with understanding. The word makes him wiser than the aged. Wiser than his enemies, more understanding than his teachers, more understanding than the ages. I understand, says the psalmist, more than the aged, for I keep your precepts, product and cause. I understand more than the aged. Why? Because I've obeyed the law of God. It's not perfectly for us, of course, even for the psalmist. For Christ it is. But for us, it's a call to keep the law of God. Now, age in Scripture is frequently revered. We ought to remember that. Often comes with it is attributed wisdom. But there's no guarantee of that, of course. One can be an aged fool as much as a young fool in Scripture. What makes the aged or the young person wise? It's the keeping of God's law, the keeping of the precepts, the love for the word of God and the observance thereof, meditation upon the law of God. Remember, the Scriptures tell us that the word can make us wise unto salvation. If the word can make us wise to salvation, it stands to reason that every lesser blessing can also be affected in our lives by an observance and love of the word. If the prize of salvation is granted to us through the word, so also is everything else. It'll give us the opportunity to make wise life choices. Wise in seeing God's hand in all our earthly dealings. Wise in God's doings with us. As it was with our Lord, so it is with us. Matthew Henry says this, The word of God gave the psalmist to understand things better than he could do by tradition and all the learning that was handed down from preceding ages. In short, the written word is a surer guide to heaven than all the doctors and fathers, the teachers and the ancients of the church. And the sacred writings kept and kept to will teach us more wisdom than all their writings. Which one of us could not do with more wisdom and understanding? Which one of us could not do with more Christ-likeness in our lives? Scripture gives you an assurance here. If you commit yourself to the Lord through his word, these wonderful prizes of wisdom and understanding and discretion will be yours. Your relationship with God, as seen through his word, will become deeper. And more mature, more delightful, more enjoyable as you give yourself to the word. 
But love for the word of God doesn't just give wisdom as it did in 98, 99, 100. It also holds us back from evil. It holds us back from evil. And that's the fourth reason the Christian loves the word. Verse 101, I hold back my feet from every evil in order to keep your word. Let me read that again because it's a strange way to convey a truth. Read it with me if you've got it there. I hold back my feet from every evil in order to keep your word. Notice there the order of action and motivation. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. The psalmist could have said, I keep to your word in order that I might not sin. And there we have a means to an end. The end would be not sinning, keeping your foot back from evil. The means would be keeping the law of God. But the psalmist doesn't say that. He changes it. The means here are, I hold back my feet from evil. I do not sin. I don't give in to temptation. Why? Because there's a greater goal. What is his greater goal? It's keeping the word of God. Isn't that interesting to us? Frequently, we use the word of God almost as, as a rabbit's foot or even legitimately, you know, a lucky rabbit's foot. Or, or legitimately, we say, hold to the word of God so I might not sin. But the psalmist says, I'm not going to sin so I can achieve the greater goal of obeying God. Isn't that interesting to us? The psalmist is saying, I'm sacrificing all earthly temptations, all wicked pleasures, because the reward of obedience is so great. His great desire here is to keep the word of the Lord. He's willing to forego the pleasures of this life in order that he might keep God's word. And in keeping God's word, have a full and fruitful relationship with his Father in heaven. Holding back one's foot from evil, keeping the word. Dr. David Murray says this, you cannot love filth and love faith. Charles Bridges says, there is no treasuring up of the holy word unless there is a casting out of all unholiness. You cannot love filth and love faith. Is keeping God's word, obeying it, because of our relationship with him, is that a great goal of your life, dear friend? Because the psalmist says it's a great goal of his life. It's like the old saying, obedience is its own reward. Similarly, the fifth reason in verse 102 that the Christian is one who loves the word is because it keeps the Christian on the path of righteousness. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. There's a slightly different emphasis to the previous verse, but with essentially the same message. But notice here the emphasis upon the relationship with God. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. 
Why does he not turn aside from the law? Why does he not pursue wickedness? Because God was his teacher. Isn't that spectacular? God is the great covenant teacher. God, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found, is the teacher of the covenant people. Our blessed Father in heaven is our infallible divine instructor. Isn't that wonderful? That means something for the psalmist. His creator, yes. His redeemer, yes. His sustainer, his blesser, yes. It's his loving father in heaven who has taught him through means. He's recognizing the relationship he has with his father in heaven. God the father has taught him. In and through the son, by the working of the spirit. You see how he's enjoying the relationship with his father in heaven? He's profoundly conscious that his father in heaven has taught him. Friend, do you know that reality? Do you think that way? Is there that close bond of fellowship between you and God? So that when you turn to God's word and you wake up not feeling like turning to God's word or, or you come to your evening meal and don't feel like doing evening family worship or whenever you do it. Are we remembering that we're sitting at table with our father in heaven who is there to teach us? To speak to us in that very moment. His infallible word. The only true source of wisdom and life. He says to you, I want to teach you. I want to talk with you. I delight in and over you, says our Lord. The other texts I read prove that. And he says, I want to do that through the word. I will commune with you and you will commune with me. Friends, when we come to the word, when we come into God's presence, our sense of God's presence should be so profoundly great. A sense of his affection towards us, of his desire towards us, his delight in each one of his children, if that's what you are this night. And because we believe that, we do not turn aside from the rules. Because God has taught us. We're nearing the end. The sixth reason why the Christian loves the word is because the word of God is sweet to the Christian. Verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Bridges comments on the psalmist once again. He said, had not, he had not only heard the words of God, but fed upon them. They affected his spiritual palate as well as his ear. It's a picture here of joyous feeding upon the word. Of something sweet. A delicacy, honey. Yet one that he can feed on daily. Indeed, the word for honey, or the word for sweetness here could also be translated smooth. As honey is, of course. Honey is smooth. 
There was for the psalmist a sweetness and an ease in receiving the word of God. Now, what does the word of God teach us? What do the scriptures, according to our catechism, principally teach? Well, firstly, they teach what we are to believe concerning God, about his person, his character, his works, uh, to teach us about the gospel of Jesus Christ, of redemption and salvation. And I hope there's none here tonight who would say, well, that's not really very sweet to me. If you have any love for your Savior, the message of the gospel is perpetually sweet to your soul. But the second thing Scripture teaches is what? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And you'll notice that in this section of the psalm, and in fact throughout all of Psalm 119, the language being used is law language, precepts, testimonies, laws, rules. The psalmist is saying that which we find so hard, the law of God, because it demands something of us, he says it is sweet to his soul. It is sweet to his soul. John Goldingay, commenting on this, says, What can be true of the effect of another person's words to us, Proverbs 16, and of the Lord's revelation to a prophet, Ezekiel 3, is also the true effect of the word that declares Yahweh's expectations, but also attaches Yahweh's promises. Expectation, what duty God requires of you, attached to it the promises, what you are to believe concerning God. Friends, the law of God is not our enemy. Having been delivered from the moral law as a system of salvation, as we uh, articulated earlier, the law of God is not the enemy to the Christian. It should be sweet to your soul. Even what the Lord requires you to do, sweetness to taste. Finally, the word, the Christian loves the word because the word teaches the Christian to hate falsehood. Verse 104. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Notice once again how understanding, wisdom, discretion is the product of a relationship with the word. That's the product of through your precepts I get understanding. The consequence is a love for truth and a hatred for falsehood. We need to be very clear about this, friends. Scripture doesn't teach, as far as I'm aware anyway, quantum physics or molecular biology or electrical engineering. It does provide us with the big, the grand structure and environment in which those things can properly be taught. That grand environment is God himself. But without the word of God and a saving knowledge of God, nothing can be truly known by man. Nothing. Without God, all knowledge is borrowed knowledge. It's borrowed capital by the unbeliever. 
Moreover, we can say very clearly from Scripture an understanding of morality, of social issues, theological issues, in fact cannot be known through any other means than the word of God. For doctrine, friends, we don't need to go to the world or liberal Christianity. We go to the word. For church order and structure, we do not need to go to the world. We have have the scriptures before us. For the counseling of the church, we do not need to use the world's presuppositions or methods. We have the word of God. Scripture, friends, is sufficient for faith and life. And as a consequence of such gathering of biblical wisdom, the psalmist loves truth and hates falsehood. I hate every false way. And that's really important, friends. Let me ask you, do you want to walk in the paths of righteousness? Do you want to be found in the ways of blessing? Then give yourself to the word which is truth and liberation from all falsehood. But you need to be careful. Living in this world, we are bombarded daily with falsehoods. Many of them are outside the church. Some of them, sadly, are within the church. We need the discretion to determine what is true and right and what is false, what is wise and what is foolish. Don't give in to falsehoods. For example, the falsehood that sin will prosper you. That's an absolute lie. In every case, sin never prospers. Or that children should be in charge and lead their own education. Or, for example, that catechizing children or leading them in the law of the Lord is is dry and legalistic. How about this? Men can't teach women in the church because they're not women. That's being said in the church. Here's another one in the church. Churches can't deal with abuse issues in the church because elders are not qualified. Go, re- go away and read 1 Corinthians 6 verse 5. Absolute falsehoods. The lie that sexual desire, lust, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, in and of itself is not sinful. That's in the church. And it's a falsehood. Just read Matthew 5, 27. We could go on and on and on and on about the falsehoods that the church and the people of God are being bombarded with day by day by day, minute by minute by minute. Hatred of falsehood is a mark of Christianity. And love of truth is not only a mark of the Christian, it is a mark of our Heavenly Father, God himself. So friends, what do we have here? We have a most wonderful picture, do we not? Challenging picture, no doubt. But a picture ultimately of Christ-likeness. Of Christ-likeness. A picture of our Lord, utterly devoted to the Word utterly devoted to his relationship with his father through the word friends this is to what we are called we are christians 
And we are called to this. In all our various callings, we are here gathered tonight. Christ-likeness in our relationship to God and his word. Because Christ ultimately is the word. John 1 and Hebrews 1. He is the word. To love the word is to love Christ. If we love Christ, of course, we ought to love our Father in heaven and the Holy Spirit. Friends, the promise here is this. Love for God and love for his word assures us now of a life that is under divine protection and blessing by Almighty God. So much so that even the tragedies and terrors of this life ultimately will work for good in the life of the Christian, either now or in the life to come. You see, whether we are ushered into heaven prematurely by a sudden death, is not that death the way that God will translate us into his presence? And if our death is used for the glory of God, then every lesser trial also will be used for our good and the glory of God. We live now according to the word. We receive the blessing of protection and and the blessing of almighty God until that time when God will bring us unto himself and we'll enjoy him eternally. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do bless you. We do honor you. We pray, Father, work a love for your word in our hearts. That we might go home, Lord God, and not give ourselves to any activity which will snatch the word from our hearts. Be pleased, almighty God, to work in us faith, to believe you and to trust you, and to give ourselves to your word, that we might be blessed and your name may be praised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.